Hey, Doug Meacham, Magnus here. Just wanted to drop you a line and let you know that I really appreciate the the uh, PayPal contribution that you made uh, to me, and this was just a couple of weeks ago. I just want to publicly thank you uh, for taking the time to do that and obviously taking the expense to do that. And I uh, just want to let you know that I'm really grateful for that. Now, for those of you who don't know, I've got a policy here whereby... Anybody who makes a financial contribution to my show, well, basically the way that it works is I will read their message in the very next episode of my show. Now, I sort of held held back on that a little bit because, well, actually, I'll circle back to that in just a little bit. But the the message that Doug wrote in uh, in his transfer to me, this uh, contribution that he made via PayPal. The message that he wrote is as follows. Greetings, Your Excellency. I'm excited for your coverage of the awesome Season 5 of Smallville and wanted to show it by sponsoring the premiere episode of this season. Season 5 is one of my most favorite seasons of the show, probably ranking a tad higher than Season 2. The first half of the season was a strong, solid run, in my opinion, with the second half having a few clunkers. Here's looking at you, Tomb. And in retrospect, I also like how Reckoning served as not just the midpoint for the season, but for the series as a whole. Clark's life is affected from the events of that episode in ways that lead all the way up to the series finale. I get into this in my insert shameless plug, essential Smallville list I wrote over at the Superman homepage for the 15th anniversary for the show. Breathe a sigh of relief now that the dreaded season four is over and we can look forward to Smallville being great again. Great again. Great again. Great again. Your humble servant, Doug Meacham. Well, Doug, let me just take the time here to say again, thank you for all of this. Uh, but second, I swear, it's like you got to look at my notes or something because you're hitting upon a lot of the same stuff that I that I'm that I'm kind of planning to explore in a little bit more depth. And I think you're absolutely right. I mean, in particular, there are things that happen in Reckoning. I mean, I don't want to spoil ahead too much, but anybody who's familiar with the show, or at least familiar with Reckoning in general. Anybody who's familiar with it probably understands that the ramifications of Reckoning, well, they take a long time to get sussed out, right? And while I'm at it, uh, actually, uh, guys, uh, Doug mentioned this in his intro message here, but I just want to repeat. You can find his Essential Smallville list at the Superman homepage, and it's basically... It's not exactly commentary on every single episode, as the name would suggest. It's only certain episodes, which is to say the most salient, the most important episodes of Smallville that Doug considers to be, you know, the most salient, the most important, all that. You can find that over at the Superman homepage. But you can also find, I guess, sort of like a draft of that, you know, when Doug was working out all of his different ideas and everything on what that list should be. He posted a draft of it, and it it was really over a period of, I want to say it was like a couple of months or something like that, on uh, the Trennis Magnus uh, Punches Reality Facebook page, right? So 
Um, basically, just sign into Facebook, search for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, and if you're not already a member, well, click on that Join button, and I or somebody else will uh, allow you into the group. You're going to need to scroll back quite a ways, actually, to find the draft of, uh, of Doug's Essential uh, Smallville list. Or you can do what I think is kind of taking the easier path and just go to uh, supermanhomepage.com and you can find his list there. And honestly, I think that may actually be the better way to go sort of anyway, due to the fact that what I see on the Superman homepage, the notes and the commentary there, they're a little bit longer and more extensive than what I remember seeing on the Trinus Magnus Punches Reality Facebook page. So honestly, I think maybe the Superman homepage is going to be the better bet. But nevertheless, the choice is yours. You know, pick your poison. Just want to raise awareness about that. And also just want to, again, publicly thank Doug for uh, taking the time and the expense of of doing this. Now, uh, Doug, I'm not trying to be uh, cagey here with you or anything. I honestly don't know if it's okay with you if I, if I publicly announce how much money you've actually sent over. So I guess just in the interest of uh, maintaining good ties with you, you know, staying on your good side here, uh, I think what I'm going to do is, at least for the time being, is keep the dollar amount sort of between the two of us. And if at some point you decide, hey, you know, it's no big deal, you can say, well, then let me know. All right. But it's just I don't want... Uh, I don't necessarily want to speak out of turn on that, you know? Does that make sense? So anyway, but again, thank you very much. I really appreciate you taking uh, the time to do this. I also want to compliment you on your prescience here a little bit because I specifically, and this kind of circles back to what I was, to something I was talking about earlier. The reason I wanted to save the discussion of all of this for this episode is because obviously this is the episode where I start talking about uh, uh, about the the fifth season of Smallville. And so because of that, I mean, I, I suppose in theory, I could have put this front tag at the beginning of just any episode, but I wanted it specifically for this episode of my show, because this, like I say, is the episode where I start talking about the fifth season of Smallville. That's what this is all about, right? And what I think is kind of prescient here is that you seem to recognize that's what I was going to do. Because the title of, uh, of this missive that you sent to me is Episode 182, Smallville Retrospective, Beginning Season 5. And, well, obviously this is Episode 182, so yeah, you, you pretty much called that. Now, another thing that I want to, I just want to clear the air on, uh, or clear the air about with you, Doug, is um, what I wanted to do, or at least what I would have wanted to do, is incorporate the everything that I've said up to this point related to your your contribution and and also the uh, the remarks about the essential Smallville list, which you can find at the SupermanHomepage.com. Basically, incorporate that into I guess the first segment of this episode. But I mean, dude, you missed it. You missed the uh, the cutoff there by like just. I swear, it, it had to have been less than 24 hours. And when I recorded this 
next segment that you're that you guys are about to hear after the intro music and everything where i say hello and welcome back to trinus magnus punches reality presented by two true freaks i'm yours magnus and i talk about comics movies and tv show you know that bit uh basically that is where i would have wanted to put all of this stuff everything that i've just said but unfortunately i'd already recorded that stuff i'm not kidding literally the day before you sent over uh this email to me not even this email actually the actual um the actual donation it was the day before that that I that I'd recorded the like I say this uh, this first segment of my show this little introduction I always do the name of which I don't really I don't really have a name for it but whatever the first segment we'll just call it that you know uh, basically you'd sent over the donation the day after I recorded the first segment and I'd already gotten everything mixed and you know set up the way I wanted it uh, to be and then boom here comes you know the donation so apologies to you you know that is normally the way i would have done it and you know the the alternative i had to recording this front tag would be to publicly acknowledge your donation in the first segment of the the next smallville show that i do for the second part of the season five retrospective which if you're any good at math at all you can pretty well figure is going to be episode 190 but that just seemed unfair to you to make you wait that long to get uh, public acknowledgement and it also kind of vitiates the prescience you you had in uh correctly guessing that this by all rights should go in episode 182 so just in case you're curious i'm sorry to talk your ear off here but just in case you were curious that's why so anyway hopefully that's all okay and i again just want to say thank you very much i really do appreciate all of that uh the uh I think at this point you've actually made two contributions. I just want to thank you, obviously specifically for this one, but really your friendship and your patronization of Trennis Magnus Punches Reality and obviously your donations as well. You know, all of those things are greatly appreciated. And so thank you very much for listening, for donating, and just for being there, dude. I really do appreciate it. And so that, I think, is pretty much it. So... Enjoy the rest of the episode. I've studied the form of comics intimately. What you need is a hobby. Words and pictures, it could be more of an art form. What? are you talking about? I don't know. It's pretty goddamn weird. A guy dresses up like a devil and a blind lawyer, you know? We have to do Aquaman. No one with a lick of sense would watch that show. The word fan actually is an abbreviated form of fanatic. And there are some people who fit that category. I believe comics are our last link to an ancient way of passing on history. You can put on a uniform for football year-round, nobody cares. Basketball year-round, nobody cares. Put on a Star Trek uniform, people get a case of the giggles. Yeah, hi, somebody told me to make comic books here. That's from Superman? Smallville. You have been trying that Jedi mind shit on me since the eighth grade. It doesn't work. Oh, it works. You guys must read too many comic books or something. People do not masturbate in the DC universe. That was the biggest load of crap I've ever heard.
Hello, and welcome back to Trenis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and what I do is talk about comics, movies, and TV shows. But every eighth episode of this show, I put everything on pause in order to talk about one show in particular. And that show is Smallville. But back in the old days, I talk about Star Wars every eighth episode, and if you want to know why I stopped talking about Star Wars, listen to basically any of these Smallville retrospectives that I've ever done, because, guys, honestly, I'm kind of sick and fucking tired of explaining all of that. The point, though, is I structured the format of Trinus Magnus Punches Reality so that I have six episodes where I talk about pretty much anything that I want, followed by a seventh episode, which, at least to start with, that was for me and Chris Honeywell to talk about the DC Paradox Press line of big books, but that's since, well, the plan he and I have is for that to just go in different directions in the future, but I guess more on that in the future. And then the eighth episode is all about Smallville. And then I start all over again with six more episodes about whatever I want, a seventh episode with Honeywell, another Smallville episode, wash, rinse, repeat, right? And as it happens, I finally finished up my analysis about Smallville's dreaded uh, fourth season back in episode number 174. So from here on in, things are going to be looking up. At this point, it'd be fair to say that We've survived the very worst that Smallville can possibly throw at us. Now, what makes the dreaded fourth season so dreaded, you might ask? Well, listen to my episodes about the dreaded fourth season, and I'm sure you'll find your answers there. But for right now, guys, we're getting into better things. But... One weird development that comes out of the awesome fifth season, as my friend Doug Meacham calls it, is that I was burned so fucking bad by the dreaded fourth season that I didn't even really acknowledge the legitimate improvements that the fifth season had to offer. And to be fair to me, the pain of the dreaded fourth season ran deep, y'all. It... It just wasn't very easy for me to acknowledge that things genuinely had gotten better for Smallville for a long time. The start of the sainted seventh season, in fact. But that's what I thought at the time. In retrospect, guys, I have to say, there's a lot to enjoy about the fifth season of Smallville. And because things truly had gotten better, I'm going back to my policy of not spoiling ahead. Except for one plot development, I've got no plans whatsoever to spoil upcoming stuff for this season because I want you guys who are watching the show along with these retrospectives, and there seem to be quite a few of you, I want you guys who are watching Smallville along with these retrospectives to enjoy the plot developments as they come along. The fifth season is a pretty transitional year for Smallville too. The first season contained a lot of universe building. One might say too much universe building, in fact. 
You could say that season one had a little bit too much emphasis on plot as opposed to character. Now, I've outlined reasons why that might be back when I was working through my season one retro- retrospective, so if you're interested in answers on that, go check those episodes out. But the point is Clark could usually be assumed to, to be mostly in the right during the first season. If Clark says something or does something during season one, by and large, that's the right thing for him to have said or the right thing for him to have done. Not always, but usually. That got cast aside in the second season for the first time. The viewers were allowed to see Clark struggling against his own fallibility. I think it could be argued that his virtually flawless decision-making processes from the first season kinda sorta lulled him into a false sense of security. Because of that, and possibly because his world had begun changing around him, Clark was usually caught off guard by people, by situations, and generally by life during the second season. During the Mighty Season 3, Clark frequently had to live with the consequences of his decisions. If he screwed up, the the aftermath of his stupidity was real, lasting, and usually harmful. If he fucked up at something or made the wrong call, he rarely got a second chance. He either got it right the first time, or else he didn't get it right at all. And as his relationship with Alicia Baker shows, even when he got another chance, he still fucked up. Getting into the dreaded season four, the idea that Al Goff and Miles Miller had was to lighten the mood of Smallville as a TV series. Now, I love the shit out of The Mighty Season 3. It's got a lot going for it, but at the same time, it got pretty fucking dark in a lot of places, y'all. So, part of the agenda for the dreaded Season 4 was to brighten things up a bit. But, another issue at play in the dreaded Season 4 was showing Clark's growing sense of independence. He made a lot of mistakes in the second season, and then he had to live with the consequences of those decisions during the Mighty Season 3. So, when the dreaded Season 4 rolled around, Clark had nowhere to go but up. But more than that, he was finally coming into a stage in life where he'd seen himself at his worst and at his best. He understood that his actions matter. And the fact is that he has to make decisions on a day-to-day basis that literally nobody can help him with. For everything else I could say about the dreaded fourth season, and there's a lot, much of which isn't very good, for everything else I could say about the dreaded fourth season, Clark began to understand that his judgment is as fallible as anybody else's, but at the end of the day, He's the only one who can make the choices that he has to make. And as it relates to the fifth season, we're going to see Clark make a decision about his powers that is totally understandable, considering all the bullshit that he's been through over the last couple of years. Now, I've said before that Smallville Phase 2 
began in the dreaded season four. The start of phase two is marked by Smallville reaching its visual zenith. From the dreaded fourth season through the end of the sainted seventh season, Smallville had never looked this good before, and mostly it had never looked this good again either. Now, admittedly, Smallville Phase 2 got off to a pretty fucking rocky start considering goings on with the dreaded season 4, that much is true, but this is still Smallville's prime. And not just from an aesthetic type of standpoint either. I mean, everything that makes Smallville awesome can be found in varying supplies from the dreaded fourth season to the sainted seventh season. So without question, Smallville phase two is my favorite era of, uh, of the show by far. <sighs> anyway, so that's that stuff. Now, last time I finished up my comments with commencement, the dreaded fourth season finale. And you know what that means. It's time for a break. Be right back to begin the discussion about the awesome fifth season of Smallville, beginning with episode one, Arrival, after these messages. Adventures of Superman on the big screen and the small screen, starting with the Fleischer Shorts. The Kirk Allen movie serials. Superman and the Mole Men. The 1950s television series. The Adventures of Superman. The Christopher Reeve movies. Lois and Clark. Superman the Animated Series and more. Come check out the Man of Screen podcast at themanofscreen.podomatic.com.
this is Erica Durans. You're listening to Magnus talk about Smallville. I'm back now, and here we are. The fifth season of Smallville. You know, this is a milestone in a lot of ways. For one thing, this is a season that produced the magic number of 100 episodes that makes any show attractive for syndication. For another thing, Erica Durant went from a brief four-episode arc to guest starring in a total of 13 episodes back in the dreaded season 4. Not only is she back for 13 episodes here in the 5th season, but she's now a series regular and appears in the opening credits. And speaking of the opening credits, they were completely redesigned this season. And you know, after all these years, it's kinda hard to express much of a preference for either the redesigned credits or the original ones. I remember really digging these new credits when they first came along though, so there you go. Headed into the dreaded fourth season, Al Goff and Miles Miller announced their intentions to tell a fundamentally lighter story. This was a response to how out of control dark the mighty third season ended up getting. And for whatever reason, and for whatever else I could say about the dreaded Season 4, it was definitely lighter than the mighty Season 3. No such promise was ever issued for the fifth season, but without getting into spoiler territory, because once again I'm, I've got a moratorium on uh, spoiling ahead this season, I think it's evident that Goff and Miller brought a similar philosophy to the table here in the fifth season, too. Season 5's Darkest Hour is nowhere near as hopeless as anything, really, from the mighty season 3. No matter how bad things might seem here in the fifth season, rescue, salvation, redemption, or just plain old hope are just... They're never too far away here in the fifth season. And moving on, this season is auspicious for other reasons, not least of which being that this was Smallville's final year on the WB network. I mean, hell, it was the final year of the WB network, point blank. After this, the merger with the UPN took place, and thus we have the CW. So, season five. I've got strong opinions about the first four seasons of Smallville. I mean, obviously I've got strong opinions about the first four seasons. Whether I really cherish them or I really hate them, I'm not meh about any of them. Season 5 was the first season of the show that, we're, that we came to that I just didn't have a lot of emotional stake in. And I'll admit that part of that was... Rich- kind of residual bullshit left over from my hostility for the dreaded season four. As I've said before, I felt completely let down by the dreaded season four. 
outright fucking betrayed, in fact. And because of that, I watched the fifth season mostly out of habit. I mean, I'd stuck with Smallville this long. And at the time, conventional wisdom had it that season five was likely to be Smallville's last. I mean, hey, who knew, right? Anyway, but I kept watching it because we all assumed that the show was going to be over soon. And, at least to me, it didn't make any sense to abandon the series when it seemed to be so close to the finish line. Very honestly, had I known ahead of time that Smallville would go ten seasons, I might very well have called it a day after the dreaded season four. But, the other thing going on here is stuff relating to my personal life. Now, up to this point, I've been a little chatty about what I was doing when the shows aired, where I lived, and all that. But I won't be for most of season five. Basically everything from the last half of 2005, which is to say the first half of the fifth season, is under lock and key. Now, a lot of people out there run confessional podcasts. And honestly, it's not for me to second-guess how other people do their shows. It's just not my business, but I'm less open about that stuff in general, and about the latter half of 2005 in particular. Because honestly, it just hurts too much to talk about it a whole lot, so usually I don't. Now, I'll be sure to give you my contemporaneous reaction to given episodes when they're relevant. That much is okay. I mean, hell, if anything, it's probably mandatory for some of these episodes, but the particulars of my life for a good chunk of Season 5 are off the table. So, don't expect very many details on that. Lastly, I've said before that Smallville was in its prime, visually speaking, from the 5th to the sainted 7th seasons. I said it, and I meant it. And I'll point this shit out as I go along. The show never looked this good before. And it had never looked this good again, either. Seasons 5 through Sainted 7 are Smallville's peak, as far as visuals, aesthetics, color design, and other things. This stuff's like eye candy, but anyway. To get into it, though, Episode 1, Arrival. Carl, you have traveled far. One journey has ended. A new journey is about to begin. Welcome home, my son. Namek and Aether arrive in the second meteor shower, tear shit up, and then Clark has to send them back to the Phantom Zone. But they never call it the Phantom Zone. Also, Chloe knows Clark's secret. Lex knows Chloe somehow ended up in a hospital in the Yukon. Clark loses his powers. Lana and Clark are back together. Namek and Aether's ship is stolen by Luthercorp. And a mysterious third passenger is revealed before credits roll. Good episode overall. From the outset, it's clear that the main conflicts of Season 5 may involve Lana but they won't revolve around her like they did back in the dreaded season four. 
Speaking of Lana, she and Clark get back together in Arrival. Because, hey, that's a subplot fucking nobody's had enough of yet. Or so it seems. Actually, though, that's not true. Shippy bullshit like this was crucial to Smallville's 14-year-old girl demographic, as I've said time and again in the past. Drama and shit like that related to Lana and Clark getting together, breaking up, having thumb wars or whatever else while a pop song plays in the background was mostly what appealed to that part of the audience. And also, as I've said before, 14-year-old girls are as valid a demographic as core Superman fans, at least as far as Smallville's concerned. So I try not to pick on the Lana Clark stuff too much because... One does what one must to stay in business. What I'll say, though, is that this isn't a tease. The Clark-Lana stuff really goes somewhere this season, and it ultimately has consequences that propel Lana through this and the next couple of seasons. So I guess what I'm saying here is the Clark-Lana stuff isn't as aggravating as it was back in, say, the dreaded season four, because there's a real payoff to it this time. Clark and Lana both have mostly valid points of view, no matter how many songs, uh, pop songs get played in the background of their scenes, and it's just somehow easier to contend with this time around. But speaking of pop songs, Arrival ends with uh, Depeche Mode's Precious playing in the background, and there's really no deeper meaning to that. I just really dig that song. So there you have it. Anyway, a major issue in all this relates to the Stones of Knowledge combining into a blue crystal that builds Clark's Fortress of Solitude. Jarrell warns Clark that a dark force from Krypton's arrived on Earth, and he intends to cause all kinds of trouble. Clark has to study. He must be educated and trained if he hopes to be able to save the world. And to go into the deeper themes and implications, Think about that for a minute. Jarrell, so far, has only wanted to control Clark, make him take over the world, torment his family, so on and so forth. What Jarrell's never done is shown the slightest interest in protecting Earth, but he warns Clark that the only way to save the world is to learn and study. As with commencement, this is another indication that Jarrell doesn't just want to make life miserable for everybody. He has a purpose in everything he does. If Clark had been willing to put his own bullshit aside sooner, he might have been able to see that. And that indictment applies to the audience too. We all had preconceptions about what Jarrell ought to be. Had we been willing to put aside our prejudices, we might have seen what Jarrell was up to ourselves. Speaking of Jarrell, there are issues related to Lionel that we've got that we have yet to get into. Some big shit was implied in this episode, and we see Lionel in a type of trance carving a stylized Z into the floor in Lex's office. It's the same Z tramp stamped onto Aether's lower back. Lionel also tips Lana off that Meteor Rocks can be used to take uh, Namek and Aether out of action. That begs the question of just how the hell Lionel knows all that. 
And don't worry, answers are coming. Now, way back in Visitor, from the second season, Clark and Chloe talk about the possibility of meeting or knowing an alien. And Chloe said, You don't think he's really an alien, do you? No. Wouldn't it be awesome if he was, though? Yeah, it'd be the story of the century, wouldn't it? This isn't about Pulitzer's Clark. I mean, can you imagine being from another planet? The experiences you could share? It wouldn't freak you out. Ah, uh, compared to most people, I think aliens would be a step up. That finds fulfillment here. But Chloe actually goes even further with it. It's just not that aliens might be better than humans. Once she realizes Clark is an alien, she expresses nothing but admiration for and gratitude to him. She wasn't fucking around when she told him that she'd accept an alien as a friend if she ever knowingly met one. Clark's uneasy with the whole thing as this is the most personal and private part of his entire life. But at the same time, his relief at Chloe's acceptance of him is pretty obvious to see. So, what I'm saying is there's good continuity going on here. Clark as a possible meteor freak had popped up on Chloe's radar a time or two in the past, most notably back in the episode Extinction from The Mighty Season 3. Chloe's reaction to that was to openly express remorse for ever creating the Wall of Weird in the first place and taking anything that referenced uh, Clark off of the Wall of Weird. This was in spite of the evidence, not because of it. Chloe didn't want to take the risk of putting her friend in harm's way, so she, t- she sanitized the wall of weird to remove Clark's participation in it. When Chloe said she'd wondered about Clark's secret, that wasn't filler dialogue. It's a God's honest truth. But nothing was ever explicitly confirmed for until Pariah from the dreaded fourth season where Alicia basically kidnapped Chloe and forced her to watch Clark use some of his superpowers. It's worth repeating that Chloe sometimes needled Clark about his abilities, but she never told anybody. Quite the opposite, she went out of her way to help cover his tracks. Anyway, other things. Back in Commencement, from the dreaded Season 4, Lex Point Blank asked Clark if he knew anything about a hidden chamber in the Kawachi Caves. And Lex knew that Clark was lying when he denied any knowledge of it. But if Lex wasn't sure about it then, he's got to be positive now because he finds the secret chamber. Not only that, he also sees the Kryptonian key to Clark's ship that's been a virtual football the past several seasons. And that's because you had different characters taking possession of it at different times. Anyway... Lex catches up with Clark later and tells him it looked like he was standing in some sort of huge ray of light. After that, Chloe knocked Lex out, but Lex is pretty sure of what he saw. The issue here is that Lex framed the question in the context of their friendship. He staked Clark's honesty, or more specifically the lack thereof, on their friendship. If you're my friend, tell me the truth. And Clark lied to Lex. And Lex is pretty sure it's a lie. 
Lexan turns and walks away from Clark without looking back. Read into that whatever you want. Another thing is Namek and Aether arriving in the second meteor shower. They're from Krypton too. They attempt to send Clark to the Phantom Zone, but he manages to turn the tables on him. And it should be noted that even so, Clark never actually has a showdown with him. And that may be a good thing. Clark does fine when he fights people who are either less powerful than he is or else with a more limited range of powers. Fighting someone directly on his level is way beyond his experience. And that's going to come into play much later on. For right now, though, this goes back to Clark fighting smarter, not harder. In fact, it's been a long time since Clark relied on pure brute force to win his battles. Here in Arrival, Clark waits for Namek and Aether to turn their backs on him. Then he swings into action and catches him off guard. There's another moment there that's worth talking about, though. As a condition for letting Clark save Chloe, Jarrell gave a deadline for Clark to get back to the fortress. If Clark wasn't there before sundown, bad shit's gonna happen. Now, Clark vanquished Namek and, e and uh, Aether, and then he passively watched the sun go down. Now, he could have sped to the fortress. And you know what? He probably could have made it before the deadline, but he didn't even try. On some level, who can blame him? Clark just had his confidence completely destroyed at back in commencement. He found out that the second meteor shower was completely his fault, and so was the coming of Nemec and, and uh, Aether. Right now, Clark has absolutely no confidence in himself. So, under the circumstances, maybe he's thinking better that he not have powers at all if this is how things are going to be. Clark hasn't learned his lesson yet. He never even thinks about trying harder. He made mistakes in the past and he continually uh, punishes himself for them. The idea of using his mistakes as an opportunity to learn and do better in the future never crosses his mind. Again, this relates to one of Clark's main problems that popped up back in forever from the dreaded fourth season. Clark's too fixated on the past, on Smallville, on this idyllic life that he has on the Kent farm. The same mentality that won't forgive him, uh, forgive himself for his mistakes, is the same thing driving this almost obsessive nostalgia for how things used to be. It's less apparent right now, but in seasons to come, we're going to see Clark's obsession with the past in very much clearer terms. In the here and now, though, one manifestation of this problem is Clark lamenting the fact that he has powers. But it's important to note that Clark doesn't begrudge the powers themselves. His beef is that he doesn't have a perfect track record with using them. He doubts his own judgments. He views losing his powers thus as a get out of jail free card because now he won't have superpowers to make mistakes with. So for now, it's safe to assume that he took all the wrong lessons from commencement and arrival. And that's his punishment. Jarrell strips Clark of his abilities. 
for his own part, uh, for his own part, Clark doesn't see this as a punishment. In fact, it's a good thing. He can finally pursue a relationship with Lana without having to live lies. He may be proven wrong at some point, though. Which brings us to Mortal, Episode 2. Martha and Jonathan are held hostage by a Bell Reeve patient called Tommy Lee. But don't worry, this is not the drummer from Motley Crue. Anyway, so Clark has to retrieve some kind of serum from Luther Corp's Level 3 to come to the rescue without powers. Chloe has a hard time accepting Clark's new mortality, but he's having the time of his life. He's loving life with Lana and just doing normal things. Problem is, Clark's got enemies, and God forbid they should ever come gunning for him. Which is exactly what happens in Mortal. Tommy Lee and the Albino Twins show up wanting a shot at Clark's rep. He's a legend among all the freaks in Belle Reeve. And anytime you have a rep, you can expect someone to challenge you. Unfortunately for Clark, he doesn't have any powers to fight back, much less defend Lana. Other things. As I said before, my God's honest opinion is that Lex's switch to the dark side started back in Onyx from the dreaded fourth season. From that time on, he's been more ruthless than ever. Season five's the first time that I think Lex was truly dangerous. We'll get more into it later, but this is where a lot of shit starts. That's why it always baffles me when people say that Lex's journey to the dark side was a light switch moment. Um, no. It was a process well underway for a few seasons by the time he lost all his scruples. Now, true. There isn't really a scene in the Chris Nolan tradition where Lex theatrically massages his temples with one hand and didactically and verbosely explains that he once tried walking the path of the just, of the pure, of the incorruptible, but that path was not his path, and so he has chosen another path. This one written by Chris Nolan, a path more true to his sense of honor, a path more suited to true power, and so he will, from this point on, embrace the power of evil, because evil is powerful, another pretentious bullshit like that. And if you ask me, it's just a sad fucking state of affairs that people need things so bluntly fucking spelled out for them. Actions speak louder than words, and through the latter portion of the dreaded season four, Lex was shown to be willing to do some pretty fucking harsh things, but that's kindergarten compared to what's coming. And a good example of Lex's new outlook on life comes right here in Mortal. Lex is a lot harsher with Chloe than he's ever been before. You remember the last time we stood here together? I ended up unconscious on the ground and you somehow landed in the Arctic. I told you I don't remember what happened. Then why have you been avoiding me, Chloe? It's been weeks since I brought you back from the hospital in the Yukon where I found you. I've been busy, Lex. Right. I heard being a third wheel is very time consuming. Lex wants to know just what the fuck happened in commencement from last season. It's really starting to piss him off and he doesn't care how he gets answers as long as he gets answers. He knows he's being lied to by Clark, avoided by Chloe, and ostracized by Lana. 
it's really starting to get under his skin. Deeper themes and implications. The only reason Lex was ever at Belle Reve in the first place is because he had Lionel committed there as Lionel still catatonic after the crystal of water zapped his ass back in commencement from the dreaded season four. As Lex stands outside Lionel's cell while he's straight-jacketed and uh, stuck inside of his cell, Lex touches the glass wall and there's an obvious visual allusion to the end of Shattered from uh, The Mighty Season 3 when his and Lionel's positions were reversed and Lionel sadly regarded Lex stuck inside the padded cell. This time, it's Lex's turn to mourn the fact that his father's stuck in the nuthouse at the beginning of Mortal. And speaking of Lex, he was monitoring Clark and Chloe's break-in at level 3. He knew about the hostage at the Kent farm and obviously knew that Clark might try to steal some serum for the freaks. But rather than intervene, Lex pulled all the security out of level 3 and let it all happen. And he's shocked when he watches the video where Clark gets burned by the laser in the vault. Now, of course Clark finds out about this, storms the mansion, and beats the stuffings out of Lex. Lex gets a shot in and splits Clark's lip. This isn't possible. Disappointed? Clark. I heard what happened. Is everyone all right? What are you doing? What I should have done a long time ago. Chloe traced the video feed from level three. You were watching us the whole time. I don't know what you're talking about. She also pulled the security records from Belle Reeve. You were there the day those psychos escaped. And you helped them somehow, didn't you? What'd you promise them, Lex? Enough serum to last the rest of their lives? You're being irrational. This whole thing was a setup. A test! And to do it, you put Lana and my family in danger. Clark. No! I thought we could start over, Lex. But you're too obsessed with the past. With me! But I'm different now, and I'm through playing games with you. You want to test me? You want to see what I'm really made of? Do it yourself, you coward. Satisfied? Here's the thing. This isn't what Lex was expecting. None of it is. And again, it speaks to how much Lex had begun to suspect about Clark and how far he was willing to go in order to find out the truth. Back in season one, Lex would never have intentionally put anybody, least of all the Kents, in harm's way. No chance in hell. But now, he's not only willing to do it, he didn't even try to deny it. Oh, yeah, he told Clark he, he didn't understand, he was being irrational, everything. But he never denied it. Now, of course, this all begs the question of just what role Clark played in Lex's actions. If, if Clark had come clean with Lex back in the first season and told him the truth, is it reasonable to assume that things might have turned out differently? Yeah, maybe. But here's the thing. 
People have privacy. Clark had no obligation to tell Lex everything, and Lex really had no right to poke around in Clark's private life. Lex crossed boundaries to do that. But obviously Clark was willing to let that go. But for as forgiving as Clark can be, he can't overlook the fact that Lex put Lana, Jonathan, and Martha in danger just to find out what Clark's capable of. Something else is that Tommy and the, and the albino twins are level 3 survivors. This is the first time that we've heard about level 3 in a pretty long time. And the implication is that they can't possibly be leftovers from when Lionel Luther conducted his own level 3 experiments. The timeline there just doesn't work. The only way they could be level 3 patients is if Lex had resumed level 3 experiments after taking over leadership of Luther Corp. And more than that, the nature of their remarks suggests that they were only recently released from level 3 and turned over to Belle Reeve. This was a very recent thing. It ties in with my theory that ever since Onyx from the dreaded season 4, Lex is moving faster and faster toward the dark side. Other stuff. Sheriff Items finds the freaks at the Kent farm and then all hell breaks loose. After it does, she and the deputies try to push through the force field from the albino twins, but they can't. And she calls that just another day in Smallville. Back in Extinction, from Season 3, she was openly skeptical about the idea of people having superpowers. Back in Pariah, from the dreaded Season 4, she seemed to accept at least Alicia had, uh, had special abilities. And maybe it was, in, 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 sh in the sheriff's mind, that could have been just special circumstances related to Alicia. But calling crazy shit like this just another day in Smallville says a lot. Back in season one, meteor freaks were something that only the Kents, Chloe, and Pete really knew about. They were slightly more prolific in the second season, generally known, at least in some places, during the mighty season three, almost mainstream in the dreaded season four, and now they're part of Smallville's everyday life and culture. Again, this speaks to Smallville being more of a science fantasy show now, as opposed to the mildly realistic series that it was back in the first season. The nature of reality is changing, and people are starting to adjust to it. Again, I point you to Justice League of America, Volume 1, number 153, from April 1978, for comparison. That issue goes to pains to emphasize that the difference between Earth Prime, which is basically our real world, and Earth 1, which was the mainstream DC universe at the time, was more than just people having superpowers. Earth-1 was a fundamentally different type of reality. A different history, different social norms and customs, different geopolitical problems, different everything. Superman's rocket landing on Earth began changing the nature of reality for Earth-1. People with superpowers started becoming more common specifically because of Superman's presence on Earth. It took years before the full effects were noticed 
but it happened. And that same evolution is happening right here in the Smallville universe, and we're watching it unfold right now. But even now, Smallville isn't yet the dense science fantasy that it's going to become someday. But already, some seriously weird shit is an everyday occurrence to most people in Smallville. Now, apart from all that stuff, when Mortal first aired, a lot of people were pissed off about the albino twins in this episode because they seemed somehow derivative of the Wonder Twins. Basically, both sets of twins activate their powers by bumping fists. Otherwise, there really are no similarities. Tommy Lee calls the albino twins the Wonder Twins at one point, but I think that's just the show name-checking some DC characters. And honestly, I never understood why the albino twins here really bothered anybody. Mind you, we're definitely in an era now where it was a lot more fashionable to bash on Smallville, whether it was justified or not. So... I guess we can expect more of this type of bullshit in the future. As far as Clark's concerned, it says something that he was still the hero in all this, in spite of not having any of his superpowers, and that he still won. He had to think creatively in order to do it, and that's defined most of his battles with supervillains up to this point. Clark's long since had a more tactical approach of figuring out his opponent's weak spots and then using those to his advantage. Here in Mortal, he figured out a way for Tommy to take out the albino twins and then he cut the power to the house so that he could deal with Tommy man-to-man. Clark may be Mortal, but he's still one tough son of a bitch. And speaking of that, it was a real risk to take Clark's powers away from him for nearly two full episodes. Clark lost his powers in the last 10 or so minutes of Arrival. He doesn't have them at all here in Mortal, and he only gets them back about 10 minutes before the episode Hidden ends. Smallville started moving away from the teen drama format. It'll be a while before it cuts those strings entirely, but the process is starting here. But Smallville was always a show about a young kid with powers. So basically, two full episodes where the kid fucking has no powers was a major gamble. And I think it paid off in a big bad way, but it might have been a crashing failure. This decision could have derailed the entire season before it even got started. It was a huge risk, and I applaud Goffin Miller for having the stones to take it. Mortal, as an episode ends with Clark playing hide the weenie with Lana. And that leads us to Hidden, Episode 3. Some lunatic gets a hold of a nuclear fucking missile and tries to wipe Smallville off the map, so it's up to Clark, once again armed with his superpowers, to deal with it. So, you know, as I've gone through these retrospectives, there are certain things I've tried to steer clear of. I just don't talk about some stuff. I don't go too much into the behind the scenes stuff unless it somehow relates to what I'm talking about. The dreaded season four is a good example of that. I brought up all the shit that went on that Goff and Miller had absolutely no control over, 
specifically so that I could excuse them for that stuff. And also, I guess just to give the shit that I do blame them for a little more credibility. But that was it. I also never discuss cast and crew, uh, crew members' personal lives. Officially, it's because I respect their privacy. But unofficially, it's because I don't know anything. And that's because I don't really give a fuck about any of their lives, except where it relates to Smallville. I don't care. So I don't know anything about them as people. I've just got nothing substantial to say there. Now, this is one of those times when I kind of have to break both rules because it relates to shit that's coming down the pipeline. This episode, Hidden, is arguably what cost John Schneider his job. The story, as I've heard it, is this. John Schneider is a born-again Christian, and unapologetically, that's how he played Jonathan Kent. When Clark and Lana are caught in the act, doing you-know-what, Jonathan was supposed to say that he hoped that they were at least safe, quote-unquote. That line was ultimately given to Martha because Schneider refused to say it. He said that Jonathan Kent would never say that. He'd kick Clark's ass for what he did, period, end of story. There were supposedly other problems, too. And it's not that Schneider was difficult to work with, either. Quite the opposite. The cast and the rest of the crew seemed to truly love him and enjoyed working with him. It's just that maybe Schneider got on Goff and Miller's nerves after a while. And after a while... Goff and Miller maybe got on Schneider's nerves too. My point here is that I'm not going to take sides on that stuff because I have no idea what really happened because I wasn't there. I don't care about it either way. I'm only bringing this up because supposedly this episode was the final nail in Schneider's coffin, so to speak. So, with all that bullshit out of the way, Clark and Lana have been having a sexual relationship with each other since mortal. It stands to reason that they were physical with each other more than once because mortal ended with them doing it for the first time in Lana's apartment above the Talon. And here in uh, Hidden, they wake up in Clark's bed after having done it. So you can infer that Hidden takes place at least a couple of days after mortal. Honestly, Clark and Lana explicitly doing it with each other bothered me a fair amount when this episode first came on. Whatever it was intended to be originally, a lot of families watched Smallville, and I didn't and don't think that Clark and Lana hopping into the sack was too much of a hot potato for a lot of families out there. I understand the, I guess, the rationale for why Clark and Lana would do it. Especially since this ended up being a negative thing for their relationship in the long run. But, I guess what I'm saying is, I don't think this was such a good idea. Then as now, I regard this as an unnecessarily divisive topic. Now, moving on to other things. There's 
There's really no deeper significance to this next stuff, but after Jarrell restores Clark's superpowers, we get one of the most amazing action sequences in Smallville's entire history. Clark super speeds back to Smallville and sees the missile taking off. He jumps aboard, rides the missile into orbit, rips out the nuclear core, flings it into outer space, and rides the missile tip back to the surface. It's a fucking amazing sequence and probably the most visually ambitious action sequence that Smallville's attempted so far. Apparently, I'm in the majority opinion on that one because fragments of this scene popped up in the opening credits for the rest of Smallville's run. Even if you've never seen Hidden, you've probably seen this sequence on YouTube. It's absolutely fucking awesome and I never get sick of watching it. I said earlier in this episode that the fifth season marks the beginning of Smallville's prime as far as visuals and aesthetics are concerned. The missile sequence is a great example of what I'm talking about there. Smallville's been honing its visual identity ever since the second season, but this fifth season is the first time they show fully married comic book style action sequences with live action. And we see a, we, we see a bit of this in Arrival during Clark's first visit to the fortress. Obviously with uh, the missile sequence as well, but also Clark's scene with Lionel in the fortress is a great example of what I mean. I'll talk more about what that scene means in a little while, but for now, I want to emphasize just how fucking awesome it looks. First off, this version of the fortress looks amazing on film. It shoots like nobody's business. It's just a gorgeous set. But when you add in the right lighting and smoke and haze and shit, it really goes to the next level. It's a very comic book aesthetic. I can't think of anything in real life that looks the way the fortress does, especially in this scene. But here it is anyway. Now, for as cool as this scene looks, it's still kind of a work in progress. Future episodes and future seasons are going to develop and enhance this style, but this is Smallville's first real attempt at doing overtly comic booky type visuals and cinematography, and man, Whitney Rancic, the director of this episode, did a great job of bringing the atmosphere, color, smoke, and all that other shit across. It just looks fucking amazing. Other stuff. Lex can't open the black ship from arrival, but he finds a stylized Z symbol on the underside of the ship. It wasn't there originally, but it's there now. Lex has seen that Z symbol before. Lionel can't stop drawing it, so Lex pays a visit to Lionel and we see the same uh, Z symbol scribbled all over Lionel's cell. This is big shit. It plays into a lot of things that, that end up happening this season. Remember that Z symbol. It's coming back. More other stuff. Back in Mortal, Chloe teased Clark that whether he has powers or not, his natural in uh, instinct is to save the day. Clark tells her that it's, that it's just a one-time thing, but once again, here he is saving the day without powers. 
It's relevant because this is a very Superman-like trait. Superman comes to the rescue and gives it his all, even if he doesn't have very much to give right at that moment. Of course, Clark gets shot for his efforts and ultimately dies from his wounds, and that leads us right into deeper themes and implications. I've talked before about how Lionel's rehabilitation is a sort of multifaceted thing. It's not simply one thing that ultimately redeemed Lionel's character. The first piece came in transference from the dreaded season four. Being in such intimate proximity to Clark's soul healed Lionel's soul. It's interesting to note that Lionel was nowhere near the malevolent threat after transference that he had been before. That process not only healed Lionel's soul, it also healed his body. And this is crucial because many of Lionel's actions in, C in The Mighty Season 3 were driven by his desperation to find a cure for his liver condition. With those two factors off the table, Lionel naturally became a lot more docile. True. Lex pushed Lionel back over the edge in Onyx, which was also from the dreaded fourth season, but all that did was really just give Lionel his spine back. He was more willing to engage in deception and subterfuge. As serious as that shit may be for such a saintly character, it's still a long way off from plotting murder. But what happens in Hidden completes Lionel's redemption. In Commencement, the finale of the dreaded season four, Lionel gets zapped by the crystal of water when Clark places the crystal of air alongside the crystal of fire on the altar in the Kawachi cave. When that happened, Lionel was sent into a catatonic trance. This episode, Hidden, is where Lionel comes out of that catatonic trance. And specifically what takes him out of the trance is Clark getting shot to death by Gabriel. Clark's body was taken out of the hospital and back to the fortress, and there Clark met his father Jarrell for the very first time. I'll come back to that in a minute, though. Hello, Kal-El. How do you know to call me that? You're my son. Jarrell? And I hope the time is coming when you will call me father. I was just at the hospital. How did how did you get me here? The portal in the cave. When this body was activated by the crystal, it became a an oracle of Kryptonian knowledge. A vessel for me to inhabit if ever you should need me. That time was now. Am I dead? Your mortal journey is over, yes. But your imminent destiny is too important to be sacrificed. You will return with all your natural gifts. Unfortunately, this rectification does not come without a price. The life of someone close to you will be exchanged for yours.
I would never ask for that. You already did, when you decided to relinquish your powers and disobey me. It was your choice. Then just don't bring me back. It's too late. For everything in nature, there is a balance. The life force that has been returned to you will soon be taken from... from someone you love. You're about to face your darkest hour, my son. But remember, the lessons that we learn from pain are the ones that make us the strongest. The gist of the conversation here is that Lionel is now Jarell's vessel. Jarell can guide Lionel, who can in turn guide and protect Clark. What's interesting here is this is the only time Jarell's in full possession of Lionel's body. The rest of the time, Lionel's pretty much a free agent, and it's really no spoiler to say that. But this next stuff may be a bit of a spoiler, but. I want Lionel's actions in future episodes and seasons to have some sort of context, so listener discretion is advised. If you don't want to get spoiled on this, just scroll ahead a little bit. Still with me? Good. As I said, Lionel remains a free agent. Jarrell tells Lionel what to do, but ultimately, Lionel decides how to do things. Lionel's being guided by Jarrell, but he still has his own conscience. Because of that, the Lionel Luther we see for the rest of the, of the series may be primarily a good guy. That much is true, but he's still a very conflicted man who's wrestling against the very darkest parts of his own nature. No matter how saintly Lionel's actions may seem, the old Lionel Luther's still in there somewhere, fighting to come out. And there are times when Lionel's inner saint isn't completely victorious. There are circumstances where Lionel uses very harsh and sometimes very brutal means to obtain his ends. What I'm saying is that Lionel Luther, going forward, is going to be one of the richest, most morally complex characters of this entire show. Anyway, the next item of business concerns Jarrell. Now understand, the character in the fortress is played by John Glover, but it's fundamentally Jarrell on the screen. In this one instance, Jarrell's taken full possession of Lionel, his vessel. That means this is the one time that Clark really hugs his biological father. The Jarrell. Inhabiting Lionel has a slightly different speech pattern as compared to the artificial intelligence Jarrell inside the fortress. But at the same time, he's a lot more tender, supportive, and emotional than the AI Jarrell. That kind of begs the question of what Lionel Luther has that an inanimate building like the Fortress of Solitude doesn't. 
the answer to that should be bluntly fucking obvious, but I won't be able to get back into this until the 10th season. So you're just gonna have to stew on it until then. But guys, it's a fucking obvious question. Still, this does open up something that I've wanted to talk about for a while now. Back in Sacred, from the dreaded season 4, it's revealed that Virgil Swan had somehow died. And the reason for killing Swan off should also be kind of bluntly fucking obvious. Christopher Reeve had passed away. There was never an option of replacing Reeve with some other actor, so Virgil Swan was killed off. And honestly, I truly believe that's about as much as as, uh, some fans have ever thought about it. But Goff and Miller made a few comments during and after the dreaded season four that make me reconsider a few things. For one thing, Goff's repeatedly said that Margot Kidder's Bridget Crosby was only brought into the show because information vital to the plot of Crusade, also from the dreaded season four, couldn't come from any place else except Virgil Swan. But at the same time that Crusade was being shot, Christopher Reeve was busy doing other stuff and there was just no way to make the schedules work out. He passed away just a few weeks after that, and like I said, most people stopped thinking about the matter beyond that point. But I'm going to lay out a conspiracy theory here. Al Goff has said that he and Miller toyed with a story idea where Swan's revealed to be Jarrell. He said it got scrapped after Christopher Reeve passed away, but consider. What if that idea evolved into something else? What if that idea wasn't completely abandoned? What if Goff and Miller applied it to another character? And what if the character they settled on is Lionel Luther? What if the whole idea of Lionel being Jarrell's vessel was originally intended for Dr. Swan? I'm not saying that's absolutely what happened, but it's interesting to think about, isn't it? So anyway, episode four, Aqua. The premise here is fairly straightforward. Arthur Curry comes to Smallville, dates Lana, and shuts down an environmentally destructive Luther Corp military project. The episode starts with a nice little touch of continuity. Clark's wearing a huge band-aid over his rib. He was shot back in the episode Hidden. Naturally, he'd need something to cover the bullet hole. Now, there is no bullet hole, but Clark has to conceal that somehow, so he wears a Band-Aid. It's just a nice touch. I dig it. This is also the first time that we meet Milton Fine, Clark's history professor. Normally, this is the kind of thing I wouldn't spoil, but I'll go ahead and do it anyway. Milton Fine is an alias. This character is, in fact, Brainiac. He's the character that we saw at the very end of Arrival, the third episode, uh, or rather, the third occupant of the ship. Brainiac's played by James Marsters, and he ended up being a great addition to the cast, if you ask me. Most of the actors on this show have a slow kind of lilt to the way they speak. There are these little pauses here and there in their dialogue. And Marsters doesn't do that. 
he's a machine, and so he has a very monotone and staccato-like manner of speaking. It, it's very fast and very efficient. And as an example... How long have you been friends with Lex Luthor? Friends? Who said we were friends? <laughs> it's just a deduction. Why else would the son of family farmers be defending such a man? It's a long story. But he's not the man you make him out to be. Well, you know, Groucho Marx said there's only one way to find out if a man's honest. Ask him. If he says yes, he must be crooked. I would think a college professor would be quoting Karl Marx, not Groucho. German philosophy is easy. Comedy's hard. He told a joke there, but he sort of rushed through it. It's a funny remark, but it's also insightful. Brainiac is a 12th level intelligence. He can intellectually run rings around anybody from Earth. So the greatest philosopher, artists, and writers that Earth has to offer? Don't impress Brainiac one fucking bit, but comedy's completely mystifying to him. And of course it would be. He sees truth in comedy, but he has no way to replicate it. Like I said, it's just it, it's a funny remark, but it's also illustrative of who Brainiac is and what he thinks. Getting into other stuff, Arthur derisively calls Clark Superboy. This is the second time this season Clark's been called Super Anything. Chloe called him Super Clark back in Arrival, and now Arthur's calling him Superboy. These are throwaway lines, it's true, but at the same time, it wasn't that long ago that Goff and Miller didn't permit Clark to be called Super Something because of his powers. This is becoming a more comic book-oriented show all the time. Arthur also calls Clark Boy Scout. We haven't heard the last of that nickname. Now, I don't want anyone to get the wrong impression here. I really dig this episode. I always enjoy it when Clark meets other superheroes, but there's a bit of an issue here with Aqua. Once Clark rescues Arthur, that's basically it. He and Arthur destroyed the Leviathan weapon off-screen, and Lex's demonstration for the Navy goes down in flames. It's probably over in, I don't know, like less than a minute. Now, to be fair to Todd Slavkin and Darren Swimmer, the writers of Aqua, I can't really think of a way to crank the action up in a scene like that myself. But maybe they could. And maybe they did. Maybe they wrote an action sequence where Clark and Arthur destroy Leviathan. And maybe that scene was cut out of the script because of budgetary issues or other problems. I have no idea. I just know that the climax of Aqua is a little weak. Anyway. Deeper themes and implications. Professor Fine shit-talks Lex Luthor, and Clark speaks up for him. Keep in mind, Clark beat the piss out of Lex back in Mortal. It's obvious that Clark's washed his, washed his hands of any relationship with Lex. Hell, he outright tells Arthur that he and Lex aren't friends anymore. But at the same time, that doesn't mean he's okay with other people shit-talking him, especially when he's not around to defend himself. Clark bucks up to Professor Fine and again to Arthur when either of them criticize Lex. Now, throughout these retrospectives, one thing I've done is remark on Clark's burgeoning fighting skills. In the pilot episode, 
I think we can assume that he'd never used his powers in any type of physical confrontation before. Because of that, his battle with Jeremy Creek and the pilot was awkward and clumsy, because this was probably totally new territory for Clark, and he had to be careful not to hurt Jeremy. That's how Clark started out. But he's grown a lot since then. By the time of Lucy from the dreaded fourth season, Clark was confident enough to super leap onto the back of a moving semi-truck and then punch a regular human in the face. So Clark's come a long way since the pilot, but even now, he finds himself in, in completely unusual combat settings with strange opponents. At one point in the episode, Clark and Arthur get into an underwater skirmish. You could fairly say that, that Arthur won that fight, and that's because Clark was literally out of his element the whole time. Now, don't get me wrong. Clark made a decent uh, showing for himself. Arthur hit him with a water spout, but Clark recovered and rammed Arthur back. Arthur turned and then hit him with an even bigger water spout, and so big, in fact, it knocks Clark right out of the lake. Now, it's hard to be critical here. I've been in a decent number of fist fights back in my day, but none of them were underwater. In fact, the closest I ever came to that was when I had a brief little moment with some punk kid back when I was a kid. And, you know, it doesn't really relate much to Aqua. F fuck it, whatever. Here's the story. Basically, the subdivision that I grew up in had a, it had a community swimming pool. Residents were permitted to swim there, and so one summer day, my brother and I went up there to hang out and swim a little bit. And pretty much the, you know, the minute that we arrived, these other kids showed up and started giving us a hard time. I don't know why. But they were brothers too, and for whatever reason, I guess they thought they'd have a fun, a, a fun time pushing us around and stuff. Now, my brother is very much a two-fisted, type-A kind of guy. Fuck with him too much, and you get fucked with. He never went looking for trouble, you understand, but when you're a kid, sometimes trouble comes looking for you. So, you know, what do you want to hear? Anyway. Normally, my brother might have kicked a little ass, but then he and I would have just gotten kicked out of the pool and sent home, so where's the win in that? So anyway, my brother and I just moved to a different part of the pool and just played there for a while. But at one point, my brother got out of the pool to get a... I don't even fucking... It was a, it was a Coke or something, I don't remember. But, and I guess that's when the other kids decided to make their move. Divide and conquer, I guess. So the younger kid came over to me in the pool and started talking shit while the other kid... Came up, to my, uh, came up to my brother and gave him a, a pretty big shove. Now, my brother made a certain face when that happened. And I'd seen that look a thousand fucking times before, and it always meant that somebody was about to get smacked. So, I saw my brother get shoved like that, and I knew what was about to happen. I knew I had to keep that younger kid busy so he wouldn't gang up on my brother, so I punched him in the face and turned around just in time to see my brother light that older kid up like fucking Christmas.
Well, nobody had to tell us it was probably time to get the hell out of there, so I rushed out of the pool, grabbed my stuff, and my brother and I hauled ass on our bikes out of there before any of the lifeguards could catch up with us. As a side note, both of those kids went home with bloody noses, so I guess don't fuck with the Magnus brothers. What can I tell you? You know, there's really no point to that story, except if all I told you was that I had as a point of comparison with, uh, for Clark's fight with Arthur, I'd probably get emails asking me to tell the story in some other episode, and if I did, people who haven't listened to this episode would want to know why I was telling such a pointless story that doesn't relate to anything. So, so here we are. Anyway. So, Clark tries his best to win the fight, but Arthur's natural habitat is water. His natural habitat is water. It was, so, this was never going to be an even match. Still, should be noted that Clark made every effort to win the fight. Considering underwater is completely new territory for him, he still made a pretty good accounting of himself. Now, way back in Onyx from the dreaded fourth season... Lex got split in half. There was a good side and an evil side. Clark eventually recombined them, but ever since then, Lex's temperament and methods have never really been the same. I called Onyx the real beginning of Lex going to the dark side, or, lacking that, a major signpost for it, and a lot of you doubted me. But ask yourself, if the Lex we knew before Onyx would have forcibly kidnapped and then tortured Arthur Curry. Understand, Arthur didn't pose an obvious threat to Lex. All Lex knew was that Arthur mouthed off to him a little bit and that he could stay underwater for a really long time. Neither of those things merit kidnapping and torture. But that's exactly what Lex does to Arthur. Speaking of Arthur... He's obviously not above terrorism to achieve his environmentalist agenda. His attempts to blow up Leviathan aren't the first time he's taken the law into his own hands, but Clark shows him another way. There are a lot of parallels with Run from the dreaded fourth season going on here. Clark had to teach Bart, back in Run, not to take advantage of his power by stealing from people. Here in Aqua... Clark has to lead Arthur away from what basically amounts to environmental terrorism. Clark has many flaws as a person, and the remainder of this series relates to him working to resolve those problems, but he's got a very clearly defined moral core. That's the most important thing for any superhero to have. For all his hang-ups, for all his amazing powers, Clark's most important weapon is a clearly defined sense of what's right and what's wrong. That's ultimately what separates him from other superheroes that he meets. And that's the main thing he tries to teach all of them. Speaking of right and wrong, Clark initially turns down a job offer from Milton Fine as a research assistant. He, he Fine, claims to be writing a book intended to expose Luther Corp's dirty laundry and wants Clark's help. Now... Obviously, Clark's got no idea that Milton Fine is Brainiac, and he certainly doesn't know what's really going on here. So, to Clark, this seems like a perfectly innocent offer. 
And Clark originally uh, rejects it, like I said. Now, my point here in all this is to say that we see Clark's influence on, on Arthur, but there's a scene towards the end of Aqua where we see Arthur's influence on Clark. He goes back to Fine's classroom and decides to accept the job. He realizes now that Luther Corp is a threat to the local community and possibly to the world. Clark wants to help bring it down. This is a major turning point for Clark. Up to now, Clark's actions have been very limited and very reactive. Clark, Clark waits until he, his friends, or his family are physically threatened, and then he physically rescues them. This is the first time in the history of the show where Clark demonstrates a willingness to use the pen rather than the sword to accomplish a rescue. Bringing down Luther Corp can't be done by force of arms. Clark has to find another way to protect people from Lex uh, and his nasty military projects. For the first time in his life, Clark's willing to use non-physical means to accomplish his purposes. This is the first time, but it ain't gonna be the last. Something else is Chloe's surprise at discovering Arthur's powers aren't even uh, meteor-induced. She's surprised even more when she finds out that Clark's met somebody else whose powers also didn't come from meteors. As I've said before, Smallville's becoming more of a science fantasy uh, show all the time. Things like people having superpowers that have nothing to do with kryptonite is going to become more commonplace as time goes by. And in fact, the day's coming when those people are going to outnumber the people whose powers do come from kryptonite. As important as any of that, Lois swings by the loft to thank Clark for looking out uh, for with Arthur. She ultimately says that she was attracted to his sense of duty. The, the guy wants to do good for society. And that's a pretty big contrast compared to most people she knows that are only out for themselves. She then says that letting him go kind of sucks because when is she ever going to meet someone else who wants to save the world? That's not meant to be ironic. Or at least, that's not all it's intended to be. It's meant to show that Lois isn't a vapid, superficial cipher. Lois isn't Lana, in other words. Lois doesn't respect power for power's sake. She admires when power is used to help people. And let's face it, that's a rare quality. It explains how Lois could have been attracted to Arthur, and it also sets up how, how she's ever going to be able to love Superman. It's not his powers. It's how he uses the power that makes all the difference for him. In the final analysis, Aqua isn't one of Smallville's most highly regarded episodes. I don't think anybody completely fucking hates this episode, but Aqua doesn't show up on very many top five best episode lists. But when you put Aqua under the microscope, obviously there's a lot to admire about it. Characters are fleshed out in ways that they've never been before, narratives are advanced, subplots are established, and Clark has an underwater fight. No, there's no thrilling, explosive climax to it, but like I said, there are any number of possible reasons for that. On the surface, so to speak, Aqua is a pretty simple, straightforward adventure story, but 
when you dig beneath the surface, you find that character motivations have changed drastically since we were first introduced to many of these characters. Hell, they're radically different from what they were just a year ago. For characterization as sharp and insightful as this, I think I can overlook the lack of a huge whiz-bang con conclusion, so job well done, guys. Anyway. And I think that's just about it for the first part of my fifth season retrospective. I've said this before uh, many times and in many ways during many episodes, but I felt completely and utterly betrayed by the dreaded fourth season. I've gone through that before, so there's really no sense in doing it again. My point, though, is that when the fifth season of Smallville premiered, I had a serious fucking chip on my shoulder about all things Smallville. I have very positive to, uh, things to say about these episodes now, but at the time, it was really hard to let go of all my hostility against Smallville thanks to the dreaded season four. There was a lot of bad blood there, and it took a long time to work through all of that. I guess you could say that I was suffering from the television equivalent of post-traumatic stress disorder, where it just didn't take very much to set me off. As a result, it took a long time to come to a place of acceptance about the fifth and sixth seasons of Smallville. Now, for reasons I'll get into much later on, Getting into the sainted seventh season required almost no effort whatsoever, but I could only really appreciate seasons five and six when I revisited them later on. My respect for season six went through the roof, but I said at the time, uh, at the top of this episode, that I'm pretty neutral about season five. I don't love it, and I don't hate it. It's just kind of there. What may end up happening as I move through this retrospective is that I'll come to an entirely new appreciation of and affection for the fifth season. I'm not predicting that, just suggesting it's a possibility. This is all an elaborate way of setting up the next episode uh, that I cover because it includes this retrospective is gonna this next retrospective is gonna include probably the worst episode of Smallville's entire history, but that's for next time. For now, uh, just let it be known that next time I'm going to be talking about Thirst, Exposed, Splinter, and Solitude. And uh, that's going to be for the next retrospective, so I'll see you guys again in eight weeks. Bye, everybody. Talk to you next week about other stuff. of geekdom here in this restaurant booth are the most powerful forces of geek ever assembled.
Weekend, the Toy Geek. Scott, the award-winning radio host. Jeff, Scott's minion. And Ron, just Ron. Dedicated to truth, justice, and geek for all mankind. It's dinner for geeks. Dinner for Geeks proudly crusades at twotruefreaks.com. Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks podcast network. You can find the home for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at trennismagnus at gmail.com. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. Visit our website at twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is always spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at twotruefreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, Two True Freaks gets a little cut of what you buy and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So you get to shop as usual and help out the Two True Freaks at the same time. Two True Freaks and all of its excellent affiliates are available on iTunes, and you can choose to subscribe to either the entire network if you wish, or pick whichever individual shows you want to follow. We have so many shows to choose from, there's just bound to be one that appeals to your particular fandom. Just search Two True Freaks with an exclamation mark at the end, space, and the number two. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? If you've enjoyed our show, please, won't you take a moment to rate us on iTunes? That helps others find the show, too. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonzacore of Milan, Italy. <laughs>